0: Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Anwar Newton.
1: Uh, what, do you, what do you do? What do you work at? And then the craziest statement of all, well,
2: why don't you suck me off?
0: <laughs> and I thought, as a driver, this is impractical. That and more. But before that, I just want to give a big shout out to two of our new Patreon patrons. There's Cameron and there's Dr. David Swarthout. Thank you so much, folks. These are $25 a month donations to us on Patreon. This has made such a huge difference to us, and we hope that it continues to grow so that we can do more and more. Because, holy camolies, folks, the, the, this job does not get easier. <laughs> Risk is growing and uh, oh my gosh it's it's emotionally and psychologically and physically exhausting but it's so so rewarding and meaningful to be creating this show and it's it means so much to us that people get that and are helping us to keep all that going to, you know, hire some more help and delegate some of our stuff to other people on staff. And, you know, we have the book coming up. <laughs> the book. Oh my God. You can pre-order it at Riskbook.com. Please pre-order tons of copies. We have all of these radio style stories that we're recording and editing. We have all these tour dates that we're getting ready to put on the calendar. We have all of these workshops that we're doing at storystudio.org There's just a lot. That is why it is so meaningful to us that people are helping us out at patreon.com slash risk. For $1 a month, you have access to all that bonus content that we put up on a regular basis, bonus stories, behind-the-scenes stuff, videos, pictures, all that kind of thing. The dog barking behind me now you get for free. For $5 a month, you get the Risk All-Star episodes plus ad-free versions of the entire Season 1 and Season 2, the first two years of Risk episodes remastered with the ads taken out. If you give $10 a month, then you get access to every episode as it's being uploaded, but with the advertising content taken out. So you wouldn't have to be listening to me say this right now. So... Go to patreon.com slash risk. We hope to keep everything growing, and we hope that our Patreon keeps growing, too. Now here's the show. Whoa! Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is The Who behind me now. Have you heard of these people? They're very well known. Have you guys seen... How much excitement there already is for the Risk Book on Amazon. They're saying it's, you know, one of the number one new releases that you gotta pre-order. If you go to theriskbook.com, get lots of friends to pre-order them. Or pre-order them as gifts for people because the more pre-orders we have by July, then, you know, the more the chances are we'll eventually end up on the New York Times bestseller list. So come on, guys, let's make this happen. The book is going to be filled with phenomenal, some of the very best stories and a bunch of new stories you've never heard on the podcast before. Celebrities, ordinary people, just the usual great stuff you'd expect from Risk and a lot of behind-the-scenes interviews and that kind of stuff. So pre-order the Risk book at theriskbook.com. We are calling this week's episode, Disruption. These are three phenomenal stories. One from our New York show, one from our LA show, and one from the recent show that we did in Phoenix, Arizona. So a really cool kind of like, journey to various places and journey through various like emotions on this particular episode in a little bit we're going to hear from anwar newton a stand-up comedian based in the phoenix area but before that a little something special this is jeff Zimmerman, who has told this story well a very different version of this story once before on our fifth episode from November 30th, I think, of 2009 was when Jeff first shared a version of this same story on the show. Every now and then, we'll have someone come back on because, you know, stories change over time. They gain a lot of nuance, and, and a person will take things in different directions. A person will remember different things over time or, or feel differently about what they can reveal about what happened over time, reframe things. Now, Jeff has a tremendous new album out with this story and many more. It's hilarious. It's called And I Am Not Lying, and you can find it on iTunes in the store there. We'll also include a link in the table of contents on the listen page at risk-show.com. But here he is now at the Risk Live show in Brooklyn. It's Jeff Zimmerman with a story we call Roo Shooter.
2: Hey guys, um, there's, no, there's no easy way into it really, but uh, I just used to work as an assistant. I worked in the Australian Outback as the assistant to a kangaroo shooter. <laughs> yeah, and I know I look like really super at killing stuff, but this is just a series of purchases I made on the internet. <laughs> All right? I, I'll make the shit out of a web page, but I don't get calluses on my hands, man. Fashion is protective camouflage, I think. Anyway, yeah, I used to. So I used to do that. They they eat kangaroo meat in Australia, right? Uh, kangaroos in Australia are like deer here, but times a million, and they can travel in packs of up to two hundred. They can be six four, weigh three hundred and fifty pounds, and they can smell rain for two hundred kilometers so if they smell rain on the other side of your family's wheat farm it's just getting flattened you're eating canned food that's it and so they hire people to go hunt them and um the fancier kangaroo shooters hunt for human consumption we were hunting kangaroos for dog meat that's just that's like what we did and so you might be asking like why is it that you are working as a assistant to a kangaroo shooter and Part of it is, well, I met this woman on the internet in like 2003 when nobody admitted that they did that. And I flew all the way to Australia to meet her, and then I ran out of money immediately, I think before I left the airport. And my plan to like steal one of their high paying tech jobs and just skate on that sweet free healthcare fell apart. So I was an illegal alien. You can only do the hottest, loudest, and most blood soaked jobs. So like I moved furniture and I washed dishes and then I helped hunt kangaroos. And also like the other reason I did it too, like let's be honest here, there was a variety of shitty jobs to choose from. I think the other thing is that my grandpa was a welder at NASA and after World War II, he and a bunch of veterans with hands calloused for murdering real Nazis, not these soft ass internet Nazis, (laughs) real Nazis that were capable of pushups They killed those guys, and then they welded together and assembled what became the first Apollo moon lander, and it's on the surface of the moon to this day. My dad was an intelligence analyst in the CIA during the Cold War, and he had better intel on Soviet supply chain infrastructure and troop movement than the Soviets. I edit tweets for a shampoo company, all right? so I'm trying to super glue a branch back onto that badass family tree here. I'm, I'm very insecure about it. Um, I'll cut the sleeves off a perfectly good denim jacket. just to. Anyway, so... So, basically, we were... It was two guys, me and this guy, Craig, on a truck on a one-million-acre ranch in the middle of the outback. Uh, there were only two human beings on that ranch the, the two people that lived there were out of town so it was just us and we drove around the desert in the middle of the night because kangaroos are nocturnal and I was not allowed to touch a rifle or a steering wheel so what I got to do was stand on the back of the truck and I would take the spotlight and kind of sweep the desert and when I'd see a kangaroo I would just like aim the light at it and the light would just freeze its tiny brain and it would just do like this And then I would tap on the roof, and Craig, the guy I worked with, he had a special truck with a windshield that was on hinges, and he would hinge his windshield down and then pick up a rifle that was allowed to ride inside the truck. He would pick that up, (laughs) and from behind the wheel, shoot the kangaroo in the head. And then I would jump down off the truck and into the bushes and grab the kangaroo and drag it by its tail or foot and pull it up to the truck like a golden retriever with thumbs. (laughs) And then I would have to take a machete and chop its paws off while he... Yeah, you know what? People always go, Ew, but you are fine when I say shot in the head. (laughs) You know? You know what? You're on board. You just don't like where it's going. (laughs) And... Neither did I. Shoot it in the head, but Jesus, keep its hands on. <laughs> Ugh. So, um, uh, anyway, uh, so I'm just going to chop, and then like he would chop off its head and its tail and would gut the animal and then take a meat hook and bang it through its Achilles tendon. And then on a count of three, you pick the animal up Right, and the thing is you pick it up by its belly and then with your other hand if it's a male kangaroo you want to grab the testicles they are nature's perfect handle they'll stretch but they'll never break so if you need to get somebody out of your house on a Sunday morning just anyway so on three and then up over this cage that was around the back of the truck and I get back on it we would just drive around the outback for you know, all night until about four o'clock in the morning, and there was just this heaving curtain of kangaroo carcasses around me, and um, yeah. Then we would take them, offload them, finish gutting them, and then put them into this diesel-powered meat locker that was right next to where we slept. I'll get to that, but so like, I would just like. Like I said, not like amazing at this job. I just sort of thought, well, you know what? I've read a lot of Hunter S. Thompson and I've got some cool tattoos and I'm really into Slayer so I'm probably qualified to do this. (laughs) But, oh God, I would just like, I would like slip with the machete, the tears would get in my eyes and I would just miss the pause altogether and um, sparks would fly up and then Craig would just be standing over here. and If he was not driving, he was sharpening a knife. just. Like this, in the middle of the desert, in the middle of the night. Like, you know how dark uh, Burke said it was in Alaska? It's darker than that where I was. So, it was so much darker. Like, uh, yeah, so he's just standing there. Craig was like, if you were to take five crocodile Dundees and tie them together with barbed wire to make a Voltron of crocodile Dundees and maybe cover that in bullet-riddled leather. That's my boss. He's got calluses behind his fucking earlobes, this guy. Right? And Aussie slang, Aussie slang is amazing, right? It's the best. A guy who is um, overweight, they call him a salad dodger or uh, or two dudes, right? And if... um, If you're being weak and you're not, like, toughening up to something... I think they're ahead of us on this one. In America, you say, stop being such a pussy. In Australia, they say, oh, don't be such a fucking soft-cock about it, which I like, because it places the blame on the male anatomy, and it implies that it's temporary, right? So... And then if you're, like, slacking at work, right, you're just kind of, like, not really doing stuff, you're standing around fucking the dog, okay? And, um... And if you're just generally ineffective, when you do try to do stuff, you're a tired cunt, right? So a sample sentence might be, are you going to fucking get those paws off the fucking animal and get it up on the ewe to what, you tired cunt? you fucking standing around fucking the dog all night? Which, like, you hear it two or three hundred times and it starts to damage your (laughs) self-esteem. Yeah, I mean... I just just wanted to get this guy's just general good... I don't know if good nature was capable exactly, but I just want to get on his good side. I want to show him that I could do, like, something, right? And so, I don't know. One day, right, we were kind of light on actual kangaroos. They were a little thin. So we went out early to hunt feral goats, and um, goats will go feral. I don't know if you guys knew that. They'll go... so feral and they get all huge. They look like the Wampa from The Empire Strikes Back. They just get like full body dreadlocks and they get so mean and they are really smart and they will kick irrigation canals open with their sharp little hooves and lick up all the water and they will not... Clean up after themselves, which in a desert situation means just millions of dollars worth of water is lost. You know, so and they sell for the same price a pound as kangaroos. So we followed them to the ranch's garbage dump, and we're hunting them down. we we're, we were like chasing them. and These goats are like running ahead. It was like it was like Fury Road, but with more animals. I saw Mad Max Fury Road, and I got to tell you, it's very accurate. So we. <laughs> We finally got to the dump, and then Craig pulled, you know, Drew on, and then he shot this giant feral goat, and had a bunch of kids around. And she moved her head at like the last second, so the bullet nicked the spine, which meant that I don't know why you're laughing now, dude. That's gross, and uh, you'll know when it's time to laugh. That's creepy. That, uh, but and then from the waist down, its legs gave out but it's still alive and it's bleeding everywhere and then goats scream they sound like a human woman right and um i just like all of the all of the fear and the disgusting just everything had gotten into me because for a full week it had just been two men in the middle of the night in the middle of the desert it's like 110 all day and i don't know in the 80s 90s at night we're just covered in blood and then dirt, and then he's just pointing at me with a knife and screaming. And, and like the the Milky Way, you could see the whole Milky Way at night, and you could tell the difference between comets and stars and satellites. And up up here, it's gorgeous, and down here, just murder, right? And like, <laughs> and and just all of it had just been really backed up, and then I just saw the goat and it's bleeding, and the kids. I mean, these. They're goats. They're pretty stupid. So they're just like, I think something's wrong with mom. And they're like sniffing their mom. And I was just like, God, you don't want to see this. Stop. Run away. And I got out of the truck. And I'm just bawling, making clean stripes on my face with snot and tears, right? I'm just like, go away. Run, run, run. And I can hear the goat screaming behind me. And then the scream just goes like, ah, like that. Because I look back and Craig's come behind it. and it just slid its throat. And he's holding it. I mean it is the most humane way to kill something you've just shot in the spine. But uh I, which he said very differently. And uh and then we're just standing there and we've got to get this goat up on the truck and just like count of 3, okay, meat hook and I'm still I'm just crying through all of it. 1 2 Jesus Christ. Jesus fucking Christ. Three, like that. And he's just like really laying into me good. He was just like, ah, oh, you fucking just think meat lies itself down on the Bergabot, don't you? This is fucking free range is what it is. It's fucking organic. <laughs> right? Well, I can just thought you'd come here, do a little tour for eight nights and then go home and tell your friends about it for the rest of your life. I did. It's been 15 years. But, um, <laughs> right right this is this is how it really goes okay you're no stranger to a fucking steak i've watched you eat mate and you do it with gusto right so this is where it fucking comes from fucking get used to it you just you just soft is what you are it's your problem and at this point he's got a very sharp knife and he's gutting the animal so its head is down here and its back legs are hanging up here and he's moving the sharp knife up the body cavity just you just fucking you're soft you over there with your computers no these things are not gonna fucking last right this has been timeless this is a career that's really going, sticking around, you fucking tired cunt, just fucking, you tired cuts always coming, you fucking, and as he's calling me a tired cunt, I see this whitish blob begin to emerge from the body cavity, and I was just like, this is unusual, I'm gonna, uh, you know, I'm gonna just kind of stand back and keep my mouth shut, and it starts to stick out, again, and you just see, you fucking useless cunt, really, and right as he's calling me a useless cunt, the knife tip punctures that whitish thing, it was the goat's bladder. The goat had really had to go to the bathroom when we killed it. So he detonates a goat's bladder, filling his open mouth with hot, dead goat piss. And I was just like, yes! <laughs> <Woo>! Like, <laughs> yeah, like, like, I'm doing it. I, it's like I just won the Super Bowl in the middle of the desert, like, touchdown dance. And I was just like, hey, Craig, hey, Craig, you know what keeps the goat piss out of your mouth? Shutting it once in a while. And um, <laughs> And then his eyes just go from, like, glittering like a knife to just dead like a stone. He's just like...
3: Ks, 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 ks.
2: Just fucking get on the ute. Get on the truck. And I was like, oh, right. I'm a million acres from, like, working cell phone service, and I've just pissed off the guy that's got the keys. Like, I don't even know what... I- so I really... I just kind of want to get on his good side. You know, I don't know if there is a good side. It's very small. It's like the exhaust port on the Death Star. Like, it's there, but it's very hard to find. And um, so I only brought one pair of jeans on this trip because when I was going on the trip, I found out I was going on the trip because Craig called me up. and He was like, we're fucking going. You're already late. Pack light. I'm at the train station. So I just threw one pair of jeans in my backpack, and that was it. And it was so hot all day, we just hung out on our underwear, but the jeans were so soaked with animal blood, they were like this wearable scab I just pulled on every night, and they would just kind of like <laughs> <laughs> like crack them in, and then they are good. But they, could, they were perfectly stiff, and I could lean them upright in the corner of my room on the other side of the room from my cot. But uh, what they would do is they would draw all the biting flies away from my eyes and mouth, and I could sleep relatively undisturbed. Huh? That was good for something. And so I would just like, it's 110. We're in an aluminum shed sleeping while this diesel powered meat locker just screams outside. And when you're trying to sleep in heat like that, you just kind of like sweat yourself awake every four hours. You gradually become like a, a beef jerky version of yourself and you wake up and just drink more water, go to the bathroom and then just repeat the cycle. And so I did that and I was coming back to bed and I'm lying down and I looked in the corner and I noticed that my pants were gone. This is, that's a problem, you know, so I was like, where, where do they go? I always put them right there. They're always just kind of standing there every night, you know, and uh, <laughs> I'm looking around my room. And then as I'm looking around, I'm sitting on my bed and this black shape just goes and like whips out from under my bed real quick. And so I looked under the cot, and there is a six-foot-long monitor lizard eating my pants. It's—they call them racehorse goanna, and they're like komodo dragons, and they just go around the outback, and they're like the buzzards of the outback, and they eat just any old fucked-up dead thing they can find. And my pants were so soaked with blood, it thought they were meat. So it's just like i am just getting in there really good. And I was like, I cannot show up to work tonight without any pants, because I've allowed a lizard to eat them. <laughs> <laughs> so like, what am I gonna do? <laughs> and I was, I was reading, uh, I, I, brought, I brought one pair of jeans, but way too many novels, really. And, and I remember I was reading Vonnegut's Cat's Cradle, because it was like, the Ice Nine sounds awesome, Ice Planet, I'm into it. And I whipped it under the bed, and hit the lizard in the ribs, and it started to run off, but it had my pants. and I was just like, oh my god, a lizard is stealing my pants now. So I got more books, and I'm just throwing them like like ninja stars, and I finally hit it in the head, and it spat my pants out, and it runs off into the desert. Grabbed my pants, pulled them back into the room, shut the door, and I was like, you know what, I'm gonna have a little Jeff Handled It story to tell later things are coming around. Like, I could feel it. I could feel it coming, you know? And uh, this is gonna be great. And as I'm going back to sleep, the door to my room just like, boom, kicks in, and Craig's just standing there. And he's wearing only uh, the world's filthiest pair of Ugg boots and then this little black marble bag underwear that Aussies call budgie smugglers, by the way. And he's like, yeah. And I was just looking at him, I was like, did you let the lizard steal your pants, man? Cause like I was able to hang on to mine. He goes, what? And I said, yeah, the lizard was in here tried to eat my pants and chased him off. And he's, you fucking knew about this and you did nothing. You did nothing. And I, and I said, what are you talking about? He grabs me, he's like, come here. And he drags me down to the camp kitchen. And the thing had not run into the desert like I thought. It had kind of curved back, gone to the kitchen, had gone to our cooler thrown the cooler on the ground and all the eggs and milk spilled out and broke and it just tap danced around in it and was licking it, making a horrible French toast batter, licking it up. And I could see like the claw and tail marks where he'd like chased it into the desert. And uh, he was like, the next time... A goanna comes around, you run it off the property, right? Not just your room. It's not just the challenges you're facing at the moment. It's not just your feelings. It's the collective unit, okay? And that's when I, like, really lost it. I was like, all right, all right, the next time an enormous lizard tries to eat my pants, I'll follow the protocol you just established. But we didn't cover that shit on the drive up here, man. Like. Listen to my accent. Do I sound like I know how to fight a lizard off some
3: pants?
2: (laughs) Just by the sound of the way I said lizard off some pants. And he's like, well, I just think it's common fucking sense. You know, you should know how to take care of yourself. And I was like, I know how to take care of myself. And he goes, Mike, would you know about taking care of yourself? I could ride on my cock with a mop. (laughs) I mean, that was a good one. You know, (laughs) it it just got quiet for a second. And I was like, dude, I'm not like you, all right? I don't. Fucking! I'll make this shit out of a web page, okay? But I don't know how to do all of this. Okay? I don't like. I don't know. I don't just hunt kangaroos for work and go swimming with sharks and punch them in the face for fun or however. Whatever it's, you relax. And uh, and he's like, oh you Americans and your fucking sharks! You're so scared of your sharks in America, aren't you?" And I was like, "Yeah, you're supposed to be <laughs> there." are Ocean-going monsters. He goes, yeah, you know how you don't get eaten by a shark. And I said, yeah, dude, do, do tell. Stay out of the fucking ocean. <laughs> Problem solved. They're not like your bears, right? They're not ravenous beasts. And I was like, excuse me. And he said, well, I've seen a few nature programs, right? They can run, they can swim, they can climb. Only, they, only thing they can't do is fucking fly, <laughs> right? If they want to eat you, you're fucked. And I said, yes, yeah, sort of. I mean, TV makes it look like that, but I have camped around bears many times, and it is fine. And he's just like, you have camped around bears. <laughs> and I said, yeah. I was camping uh, outside of Coeur Idaho a couple years ago, and some grizzlies came out of the forest, and we saw them come out of the forest, and we hid in the tent, but we'd put all of our food in the car and wrapped it up tight and the rest of the food we'd tied up between two trees and it just looked around and like sniffed the car, looked up at the cooler and it was just like, too hard, fuck it. <laughs> just went off into the woods. And that was the end of it and we had a great trip. And he goes, oh, I'd have been so bloody scared. <laughs> Thanks guys. Skies like
4: when you were young,
2: like the the Milky Way. You can see the whole Milky Way at night, and you can tell the difference between comets and stars and satellites. And up here, it's gorgeous, and down here, just murder. For a full week, it had just been two men in the middle of the night, in the middle of the desert. It's like 110 all day, and I don't know, in the 80s, 90s at night. We're just covered in blood, blood and then, blood, dirt, blood, and then blood, dirt, and then he's dirt, just pointing at me with a knife and screaming. Come here! Are you gonna fucking get those paws off the fucking animal and get it up on the ewe to what? you tied? Tie, 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 tie. you fucking stand, 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 around fucking the dog all night? You fucking tied cut, just fucking, you tied cut's always coming, you fucking, you just, you just soft as what you are. Don't be such a fucking soft cock about it. Mate, would you know about taking care of yourself? I could ride on my cock with a mom
1: About three years ago, uh, I was the dude in the corner of the bar watching everybody else have fun. Uh, I was the bouncer. (laughs) I started working as a bouncer because I spent too much money on whiskey. And I decided uh, I need to recoup those expenses. And I was working as a, a bouncer at a small neighborhood dive bar. And we were closing up the bar. And I'm waiting to get tipped out. And as I'm sitting there waiting for my tip out of the evening, I figured I was a little bit hungry, and it's about 3.30 a.m. You know, not a lot of things are open. It's about Whataburger and McDonald's, if you can find a 24-hour one, if you're lucky. And I'm trying to calculate where I could get something to eat before I get home. So, as I get tipped out, I head back out to my vehicle, which is a 1988 Honda Accord LX. (laughs) Dingy white periwinkle interior (laughs) and i sit down in my car and i'm thinking about that three mile stretch back to my house and i say oh there's a circle k uh convenience store 24 hours right down the road i can stop in there and get some snacks and as i'm driving down i'm calculating how to make this fast because it's late and i really want to get home and i had the brilliant idea i was like oh it's pretty late and i don't see anybody out um i'll just go ahead and park my car right in front of the glass doors." And you know what? I know exactly what I want. I'll just leave the car running. And run right in. I can see it right here from the double doors. This is a great strategy. And I go inside and I get food my body doesn't need or deserve. I'm standing at the cash registers with ten taquitos in one hand. Like some sort of taquito wolverine just... All the Haribo candy in the other hand. Not even a good pairing. This isn't even a good meal. And I'm standing at the cash register, and I'm like, this is brilliant. I got here really quick. But then I realized that the, uh, the cashier was way in the back by the soda fountain machine, and he was walking like he just suffered several gunshot wounds to his knees. And I'm thinking, oh this, is, <laughs> this isn't going well. And I look back at my car. It's still there. Light's still on and he takes a while to get to the front and I'm looking at him very frustratingly and he processes my order and with my frustration I grab my candy, my taquitos and I rush back out to my car and I get to my driver's side window and I look inside the car and um, there was a man sitting in my car uh, in the driver's seat and upon further inspection, that man was not me so this is all wrong, (laughs) this is wrong, this is incorrect. And I kind of wave at him like, there were no other cars in the parking lot when my car got there. So I, I'm waving, like, did you, did you get in the wrong car? And he didn't see that. And with the even more politest of gestures, I tap on my own driver's side window, ting, ting, ting. I say, oh, hey. And he finally looks up and he notices me. And I say, oh, hey, sorry to uh, stop you from taking what's mine. Uh, what's going on here? And with the most apathetic of gestures, he just shrugs and goes back to gear shifting my car. And I was like, yeah, you deserve this. Uh, And I'm sitting there watching this happen, and... I feel like I'm in a twilight zone. I'm looking around. I look to the the left of the Circle K and I look into the right of the Circle K building and I just know at this point a camera crew is going to come out and a boom mic operator is going to rush out and a host very excited saying, you got pranked is going to come out and I was going to be on this brand new 3.30 a.m. steal your car reality show that was starting filming right now for the pilot episode. And I realized when that wasn't going to happen that I was about to get my fucking car stolen. And I think, well, just, uh, just jump on the car hood. And I was like, well, that's completely futile. Um, and before I had the time to process what to do, I yanked on the door handle, was locked. And the car just backs up as quickly as my stupid decision to do this was made. It backs up and it screeches to a halt. And right there, I just watched as my entire net worth was sailing out of my life. I am not a rich man. This is all I own. I own the car. I own 10 taquitos. I own a handful of Haribo candies. This is a guy. This is all I got. And I sit there and I'm... I'm like okay well all right i'll call the cops and i had two percent battery life on my phone i go i'll just call the cops and i hold up my phone i wave to him and i say i'm calling the cops he didn't hear me because he had the window rolled up of course and and while i'm dialing the phone number uh, i hear the car uh rev up and then the engine shut off and then the car stopped and then the car started back up again And I dialed a one and then I hear the engine start up and I hear the engine rev up and I hear the car stop and then shuts off. Then I hear it start up again. And as I'm about to dial the last one, the car shuts off again after revving up and the car door opened up. And I my heart dropped because I was like, he's going to shoot me. (laughs) I'm going to die. And what happened next completely threw me off. He said, hey, hold up, motherfucker, hold up teach me how to drive it. (laughs) I don't don't know how to drive a manual transmission. (sighs) And right then I realized I had the best anti-theft system known to man. (laughs) Manual transmission. And I'm stupefied. I'm sitting there looking at the kid, and I'm, I'm sizing him up at this point. I'm a large man. I'm six two. Uh, I'm a big guy. I could be a football player if I gave a shit. And, <laughs> and this kid, and he was a kid. He looked like he was around seventeen, eighteen. He had baggy clothes on, a camo shirt, big uh, cargo shorts on, baggy clothing. Little tiny. Is at this point, my friends would ask, well, why didn't you just rush this kid and beat him up and take your cars? Because I didn't know if he had a knife or a gun. And right then and there, I decided, I'll just appeal to this kid's human side. I'm used to working as a bouncer. I know the best thing you can do is have a lot of patience with people. And I said, what's going on, man? Do you need some help? Can I help you? Do you need a ride somewhere? And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you just give me a lift down to 12th Street in Indian school? And I was like, I was like I'm gonna give you a ride and you gotta promise you're not gonna stab me okay because you just tried to steal my car and I'm feeling a little ways about this right now (laughs) now when I offered that gesture I was hoping he would get out of the driver's side walk around the front of the car to the locked passenger side and I could just get the fuck out of there but he got back inside the driver's side, climbed over the console, and got in the passenger seat, and I said, fuck you. <laughs> and I get back now in my reclaimed vehicle, and in this rush of adrenaline and stupefaction, I start teaching this guy how to drive my fucking car. <laughs> and I start the car off, and I say, You know, he's like, so 12th Street in uh, Indian school? Yeah, so what you got to do? You got to put the clutch in. You got to put the clutch in first, and then you shift. So which uh, side of the street do you need me to drop you off at? And as we approach 12th Street in Indian school, he goes, oh, no, man, I mean, I I didn't mean 12th Street in Indian school. I meant 40th Street in Baseline. Okay, so you're all Phoenix residents. You know the distance difference. (laughs) This is a 10-mile difference in locations. And I thought to myself, I like all of my original holes. I don't need any new holes put in me, especially while I'm driving. I'll just figure this out and I merge onto the highway and start driving south. Now my strategy was, and I had to come up with a strategy to get this motherfucker out of my car. My strategy was, the first cop I see, I'm the drunkest driver on the road. It's 3.30 a.m. There's a lot of cops out. I'll just start swerving. I'll do donuts in the middle of the highway. (laughs) They will notice me. And I'm riding, and about seven miles down the road, there is not a car in sight. And I get off at 40th Street, and as I'm heading south, I make that right turn. I think I have got to figure out how to end this because if I get to where he wants me to get me to, I think that's where he's going to abduct me or use me as a, a, a carcass where he can stuff drugs in. in a, I don't know what he has planned. As we're driving down the street, he's saying the craziest things, and it's then I realized he had a medical bracelet on his right wrist, and. I didn't know if he had gotten released from a hospital or from a psych ward because through that drive, not only did he turn my radio up so loud that he blew the speakers and we were listening to fart noises <laughs> for about several miles, but he would just burst into statements. Uh, where are you from? And I'm like, well, and I, uh, what, do you, what do you do? What do you work at? And then the craziest statement of all, well, won't you suck me off? And I thought, as a driver, this is impractical. (laughs) And so I figured maybe he got released from a mental hospital. (laughs) And I thought, well, this is is a troubled 17-year-old. He's out of his mind. He clearly just got released from somewhere. But I do want him out of my car. And as we head down 40th Street, at 40th Street and Baseline... I see another Circle K, great! And I pull into the the gas station, I park the car at a gas pump, and I think, okay, I'll try to get him out and go buy some goodies, and I'll just leave when he gets out of the car. I get out of the car, I say, hey man, do you need anything in the Circle K? Uh, I'm just gonna put some gas in, and then I'm gonna take you right to 40th Street and Baseline, like you you said. And he goes, no man, I don't need anything. I'm like, are you sure? (laughs) he goes, no, I don't need anything. And I was like, okay, well, uh, my card isn't working on the pump. Uh, I'm going to go inside and I'm going to get some water. Do you want me to get you anything? I don't know why I asked him. He was already costing me my entire night. He goes, give me some cigarettes. I'm like, fuck you. These are expensive. In my head, I said that. And I go inside the circle cab. I walk up to the cashier and I look her directly in the face. And I say very calmly, I need you to call the police. I've been carjacked. I'm going to buy a water and a pack of cigarettes. And when I come back here, we're going to get the police here. But if you see the man at pump two, get out of the car. We are not talking to the cops. I don't know if he has a weapon. She goes, okay. I get the water. I get the cigarettes. We're standing there. We're talking to the dispatch and we're getting the cops the information to come find us. And that's when he walks into the double doors of the Circle K gas station and I drop the phone. And he walks up to the cashier and he says, hey, can I get a pack of cigarettes? And she goes, with the angriest tone I've ever seen a 60-year-old Circle K employee white lady, she says,
0: do you have ID?
1: And he goes, oh, man, no, no. And he, he turns around. He's about to leave back out of the Circle K. And that's when the cops show up. The fastest response time I've ever seen in my entire life. It took them two minutes to show up. And we had given them a description, uh, black man, uh, short, this, that. But also, it was two black people in the Circle K, so I made sure they didn't know it was me. So I was just pointing very aggressively, like, it's him. It is this man right here. This is the man you're looking for. Him. Him. And the three officers approach him and they put him across the, uh, the counter and they start emptying his pockets. And that's when I realized the whole car ride, he had been stealing all of my belongings and pocketing them. He had my fucking car insurance, my car registration. He had my, my air freshener. He had everything in his cargo pockets, which is why I don't like cargo pants anymore. It's too much room to steal things. It was at that point... I just had a sigh of relief. This was finally ending. This is an hour excursion out of my way. And they lead the guy outside the Circle K. And they set him on the curb. And one of the officers goes, so you want to press charges? I'm like, no. I just want to get the fuck home with my taquitos and my Haribo candy. And then I'm good. And I get all my belongings. I head back to my car. I get inside and the windows are down. As I roll outside of the parking lot, I pass by the three officers in the front of the Circle K and they have him, not restrained, but they have a hand on him and he's standing up. And as I pass by, I look over and he yells out, hey man, thank you for helping me. (laughs) And I thought about that as I got back on the highway and as my speakers farted out, (laughs) Norteño music at the loudest volume it could possibly. Could. And I thought, did I help him? I hope I did.
0: I hope I did. baby, I'm hot, light Take a battle, Lini, Minnie, Money, Moe, and Flower, you're the chosen one. Till your left
3: hand's free, and your right hand's in grip. With another left hand, and watch his right and self Swartz is gone.
0: This is Risk. This is Alt-J behind me now. And we just heard from Anwar Newton, who you can find on Twitter, at the Anwar Newton. Okay. Well, I'll tell you. Uh, you know I got to tell you something about stamps.com now, do you not? Listen, this is a New Year's resolution <laughs> you can actually keep. I've, I've made a mess out of every one of mine so far. You can add stamps.com to your business and you can save a ton of time and money. This year by doing that, Stamps.com brings the amazing services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your computer. It's the better way to get postage. You use your computer to print official U.S. postage for any letter or package, any class of mail, and let the mailman pick it up. No leaving the office, no more lugging mail to the post office, no more hassle. Plus, Stamps.com has postage discounts you can't get at the post office, not to mention it's a fraction of the cost of one of those expensive postage meters. So, Stamps.com sends you this digital scale that automatically calculates exact postage. You'll never overpay or underpay for postage again create your own stamps.com account in minutes with no equipment to lease no long-term commitments it's convenient we use stamps.com at risk and the story studio and we've always loved it and right now you too can enjoy the stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale so if you're ready for a happier new year go to stamps.com click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in risk that's stamps.com enter risk our final story today is a real beauty it comes to us from julie brister super talented actress improviser writer based in los angeles she's been on let's just say every comedy tv series out there (laughs) rather than me list all of them let's just say all of them And you can find out more at juliebrister.com. Here she is at the Risk Live show in Los Angeles. It's Julie Brister with a story we call Laurie.
4: favorite movie is The Shining. I don't love The Shining because it's Kubrick or because it's Stephen King or because I worship Shelley Duvall, which I do. I love The Shining because it's the last happy memory that I have of my sister. When The Shining came out, it was 1980. I was 14, my sister was 16 and The Shining was rated R, and we were desperate to see this movie. My parents had no problems with us seeing R-rated movies. In fact, my dad brought me to Monty Python's Life of Brian, which has male nudity and which was very embarrassing. He brought us to Animal House. He brought me, my brother, and my sister to Rollerball. A rated R movie was really no big deal to them, but they didn't want to see this one because they thought it was a horror movie. My parents don't know anything about the cinema. (laughs) My sister was tall and willowy and looked mature, and she was confident that she could get past the gauntlet and she was going to turn 17 in just a couple of months anyway, but she was less confident about me because I was short and I was stubby and I sometimes still played with a Fisher-Price castle. (laughs) So I needed a little bit of help, and she gave me a makeover. She gave me a makeover to make me look like a 35-year-old prostitute. (laughs) She gave me a side ponytail. <laughs> she put Aziza coal blue eyeliner on the insides of my eyelids, which at that time and in my world was the mark of a true slut. <laughs> we wore matching outfits. We wore overalls and tube tops. She wore a red one, I wore a blue one. I thought that was an unconventional choice, but we were swinging big because we really, really, really wanted to see The Shining. So on the drive to the movie theater, my sister had a great idea, and Laurie turns to me and she's like, oh, oh, pretend like you're deaf. There's no way that these movie theater employees are gonna card a deaf girl. Crazy logic, but my sister had been studying sign language for about a year at that point, and so she knew a lot of it. All I needed to know was the sign for yes, which is like a nodding fist. So we get to the theater, we're in the box office, and before she asks for the tickets, my sister turns to me and she says, and signs at the same time, Are you sure you want to see this movie? Two tickets pop up, and we get right in. We head for our popcorn, just still delirious with what we've gotten away with. The movie scared the shit out of us, but we loved it. After the movie, I drank a warm Coors Light in my sister's car, and I swear to God, I'd never felt like more of a grown-up in my life. It was a really, really fun day, and it was special because... We worked together as a team for the first time in a really, really long time. It had also been a while since we'd had fun together. It was a very rare occurrence at this stage in our lives. Earlier that summer, my sister had gotten her first summer job working as a lifeguard at a pool called the Seahorse Swim Club. She'd overgone a complete personality change and The foundation of that personality change was that she was extremely tan. (laughs) More tan than anybody I'd ever seen in my life. And she was not, she was fair. She was a very fair, complected blonde person, but she had a mahogany tan. (laughs) Once she got tan, she was wearing a bikini top and cut off shorts 24 7. She tried to wear a bikini top and cut of shorts to steak and ale, but it didn't fly. She got kicked out of steak and ale. <laughs> she started staying out all night long and hanging out in like parking lots of the Winchell's Donuts and at the bowling alley and in parking lots. And my dad would have to get up late at night realizing she's not home and he would go out and try to find her. And she'd be drinking malt duck with these dirtbag boys. And not just high school boys either. Sometimes they were college boys, sometimes older. Sometimes they were men. Sometimes men would call the teen line that she and I shared and would ask for her when I answered. And if she wasn't there, they would talk dirty to me on the phone. She'd gone from the kind of kid who did whatever she was told to being the kind of kid that did whatever the fuck she wanted, but it didn't make her a happier person. In fact, it did just the opposite. She became more and more unhappy. A few months after we saw The Shining, my sister committed suicide. She woke up one morning, she put on her bathrobe, and she walked to a park near our house, and she shot herself in the head. It completely devastated our family. I remember that day better than I remember any other day. Years after she committed suicide, I would replay the day in my head over and over and over again so that I wouldn't forget the details. I remember getting ready for school and overhearing my parents talking about where she could be. My dad had called down to her room and to make sure that she was getting ready for school and when she didn't answer, he went down to check on her and she was gone. I remember what I wore that day. I remember I hot rolled my hair and I wore overalls. Overalls were obviously a thing for me. And I wore a John Lennon pin on my left strap. John Lennon had been murdered like a month before this happened. I wore a yellow Oxford cloth shirt and Nike lady all-courts, which were brand new. It was freezing cold, and so I had to go back in the house and get my rabbit fur jacket. When I came out, I saw my dad was backing out of the driveway. Apparently, he thought that maybe she'd gone for a run or something, so he'd done a pass through the neighborhood. On the drive to my school, I just tried to keep it light, which is what I would do when there was tension in our family. My mom didn't say anything until we got to school, and then she turned to me and she told me that my dad had found my sister in Leftwich Park and had brought her to the hospital and that I needed to go to school because I had a chemistry test that day, and if there was anything that was really, really serious, my brother would come pick me up. I went to find my friends in the auditorium before class and I remember crying and telling them what happened. And isn't it fucked up that my mother made me go to school? Yes. My brother showed up at the door to my French class, which was first period, and I remember being momentarily embarrassed because his ski pants were really, really tight and he was wearing a puffy Michelin man jacket that was really, really puffy and he looked like a cartoon. And the drive to the hospital was uncomfortable because the passenger side seat in his car was broken, and so I had to lay back, fully reclined. And on the drive there, I remember just looking at power lines and the tips of trees and wondering what the fuck was going on. We pulled into the hospital parking lot, and I saw my dad outside of the emergency room, and He was wearing his suit, but no coat. And it was freezing, and his tie was flapping like crazy. And as we were parking, I saw a family friend of ours who we called Uncle George, but who wasn't really our uncle. And he joined us, and then as we were getting out of the car, I heard my dad tell Uncle George that Laurie's brain was hopelessly destroyed and that she wouldn't survive. There were so many people in our house bringing things like deviled eggs and King Ranch casseroles, neighbors, friends from church, teachers. I stayed in my room for the most part because I hated having so many people in my house and I just wanted everyone to leave. And the next day was her funeral and it was overflowing with people and it's all a blur because it was so many people. And then after that, I remember going back to school the day after her funeral still stunned and completely unable to deal with my feelings. Laurie didn't leave us a note, which is a terrible thing to not do. It was torture for my parents who tore her room apart looking for something, anything, that would give them a reason or an answer. She'd been adopted as a baby, so if there was an answer that lay in her genetic history, we were none the wiser at all. What we did know was that she was a very sensitive kid and that she was very rebellious and that she was fun and she was creative and she was deeply emotional and prone to rages and mood swings that would keep us on eggshells. She was a brilliant student and a gifted musician with endless potential. She had tons of family and friends that loved and adored her, and why she may have killed herself is a mystery to all of us still to this day. I miss the kind of relationship that we could have as adults, to be honest, because I think that we would like each other more as cynical adults than we did as horrible teenagers. For a long time after her death, I would see a movie or a weird TV show and I would think, oh, Laurie has to see this. I know she would have loved Nightmare on Elm Street and The Blair Witch Project. She would have loved Twin Peaks and Honey Boo Boo and Real Sex on HBO. <laughs> especially the hippie stories. She would have loved Survivor. She would have loved any garbage reality TV. She would have really been into escape rooms. I know that for a fact. (laughs) You never get over it. I'm the same age now that my parents were when my sister died. But honestly, I'm always going to be that weird 14-year-old who struggles to move on. Thank you.
0: this week's episode folks this is Andrew Combs behind me now and we just heard from Julie Brister well I'll tell you folks I want to remind you again that you can pre-order The Risk Book at theriskbook.com. We need lots and lots and lots of pre-orders in order for the book to kind of like catch on. And uh, maybe we would end up on the New York Times bestseller list if enough people pre-ordered between now and July. It's going to be filled with some of our very, very best stories, transcribed, edited, you know, with new parts put in, interviews with the storytellers, a lot of new stories in there. And if the book sells well, we can come up with another one, well, as soon as possible, because we've got so much amazing content, like it's so hard to choose what to go in. So... Pre-order for yourself, for your friends, tell all your friends to pre-order, that is all at theriskbook.com. We're going to start the year off with some truly fabulous live shows we've got planned. On January 20th, we're back at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. An amazing lineup. Al Jackson will be back. We love Al so much. Julian McCullough will be there, Sabrina Jalice, Danielle Perez, Jen Glantz. That's going to be a fabulous show. On January 20th, we will also be in San Francisco. I'll be hosting that one at the Swedish American Hall in San Francisco on January 20th. That's a part of Sketchfest. Guy Branham, Dana Gould, Biz Ellis, and Marcela Arguello are all going to be there. That's going to be a fabulous show. That's January 20th in San Francisco. Now, on January 26th, we're doing our first show ever at Caveat on the Lower East Side on Clinton Street in Manhattan. January 26th, that will have Joyelle Nicole, Gaster Almonte, Tracy Rowland, Brad Lawrence. Fabulous show there. Now, there are so many other ways you can get involved with Risk. You can pitch us your stories at risk-show.com submissions. All sorts of tips for how to pitch us there. We're especially looking for people, you know, within two or three hours of the New York or the Los Angeles area, if you want to travel and do one of our shows there. Uh, but we're looking for people from all over the world because we can also record stories remotely. You can also find out all sorts of stuff about us On our social media, on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, we're at Risk Show. There's a lot of conversations going on, like in the Risk Fans discussion group on Facebook. You can leave a good review for us on iTunes in the podcast section. That helps us out quite a lot. And you can check out our education at thestorystudio.org, one-on-one training over Skype, in-person workshops video workshops you can download and do in your own time and of course corporate workshops that's all at thestorystudio.org folks today's the day take a risk christina